Hello there. My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. It isn't that long ago, certainly within my lifetime, when trout fishing was a very different proposition in terms of fishery availability and breadth of appeal than it is today. Then, as with the current carp-dominated coarse fishing scene, a popularity explosion occurred, fuelled by the introduction of rainbow trout and the widespread opening of stillwater fisheries. A combination that has made fly fishing for trout both accessible and desirable to a very large number of people. Like all evolving entities, progression is often strewn with false starts, directional changes and out-of-style discarded ideas. One of the most fundamental, I feel, has been the development of winter fly fishing. Joining me here to discuss the opportunities and strategies for winter success is Midlands fly fishing school owner Steve Yeomans. But, first things first, we need to set the scene with a bit of background on the angling pathway that persuaded you that winter fly fishing has so much going for it. From my own development in fishing, I first started at the age of four, and uh, somebody, believe it or not, bought me a little child's magnetic fishing game at Christmas, completely out of the blue. It was the only thing I played with all Christmas, so I'm told anyway by my parents. And um, after that, I pestered them senseless to go fishing. It started off with a bit of course fishing on the local canal and park lake and things, and I just started to pick up everything I could initially as a child in terms of initially reading books and magazines and then fishing programs on the TV and things and quickly family holidays where I wanted to go sea fishing and then I wanted to try this thing called fly fishing that just looked at another level of complexity completely and although I was really probably too young uh, when I first picked up a fly rod to do anything really well with it I stuck with it and it just became part of my fishing as a whole initially. And we had a little brook a little bit later on in my childhood, close to home, that ran over some farmland that got some wild brownies in it. And everybody wormed this brook. And the bigger browns were well aware of bait fishing tactics. But um, I just tried a little bit of wet fly fishing for them. And lo and behold, I found that this was really successful for catching the better wild browns in this brook because they'd seen every bait fishing tactic from free lining, ledgering, float fishing and everything under the sun. Obviously no one had tried fly fishing for them. And then I just developed from there. Many years down the road, I found myself at a point in my career where I fancied making a career change and 12 years ago I decided having spent several years instructing in my spare time, to give it a go full-time. And um, I've been doing that guiding and and instructing professionally full-time for all that time. So that's a little bit about me. But in terms of what attracted me to fly fishing in winter, there were a number of things. One is... Over the last 20 years, there's been an increasing awareness that you can catch not just species of trout and salmon on a fly. You can also catch any species, both freshwater and saltwater, on a fly and with fly gear. And I've been pottering around with things like carp and pike and barbel and chub and 
perch for 20 years as well as trout and grayling and salmon and things. But also now you can go out on the beach and things like that and target bass and mullet and mackerel and things. So there's a whole awareness of more species to go out for. Now, things like pike and trout themselves are cold water fish. So from a still water fishing perspective, which is the main topic that we're going to look at today, the cooler parts of the year actually suit the trout better than the height of summer, which is where you would think of the more traditional trout fishing season would be at. And whilst river fishing is great then very often, the still water fishing, it's the height of summer is probably the toughest time for it, whereas the late autumn, winter, early spring period is just absolutely the best time to go out still water trout fishing. That's something that I don't think a lot of people really realise. So part of that awareness, if you like, is something that I've always encouraged people you know, don't put your rods away. Get out there and enjoy the winter trout fishing as well. It wasn't so long ago that you couldn't trout fish in the winter because the trout are going through their spawning cycle around then. However, we've also in the last 30 years seen massive developments in the rearing of fish and predominantly the still water fishing across the most of the UK, certainly most of England, is for fish that have been introduced to a piece of water. And we've now got year-round fishing for those fish because they are what are known as triploids, which are a sterile fish. They're not going to go through the breeding cycle. And the reason they've come about is because if they're not going to go through the breeding cycle, why have them go through that stress? They can stay in great condition all year round. They're happiest during the cooler parts of the year. And as a, an aside from that, we've now got the opportunity to go trout fishing all year round. That brings us very nicely onto the actual winter fishing itself. But one thing you could perhaps elaborate on first is your interpretation of the term winter. For example, I've cast flies out onto ice and drawn them back into areas kept ice free by ducks and still caught fish. So how limited or otherwise can the fishing activity become in winter and what might be available to these fish in terms of food? As I said and as you just reiterated, we aren't just solely looking at winter. Winter conditions have a strong tendency to overlap into the latter part of autumn and the early part of spring and sometimes the first half. So it can end up being a, a period of time that can be anything up to about six months of the year. So the same tactic can effectively cover half of the year. In terms of water temperatures, the fish are generally happiest somewhere between, say, around about 45 and 65 Fahrenheit. Between that, they're feeding actively. And as long as they can find comfortable temperatures within the body of water that they're in, be that closer to the surface or deeper down depending upon the, the conditions that we're looking at, they'll stay active and feeding at productive times throughout the day. Now when I mention productive times, as a very general rule, 
during the cooler parts of the year, you tend not to get much insect activity early on in the day. And as the day warms up, say, by late morning, you start to get a little bit more insect activity and that triggers the fish off. All of a sudden the food becomes more available to the fish through its increased activity and that triggers the fish to feed. So that period, say from late morning to mid-afternoon, is a prime time on average for the fish really to, to kick into feeding mode. And then if the temperature drops quite quickly after that, in, in that sort of latter afternoon period, everything will shut down again. If on the other hand it holds up, you can get feeding activity going right through into dark, which is a great time to fish. So um, in terms of what's available to the fish there, it does vary water to water. Some lakes and, and pools, reservoirs, depending upon the scale that we're looking at, have good heads of small fish in them. They're typically coarse fish species like roach, perch, gudgeon, things like that. And it's surprising just how big a fish a trout will take as a food item. And they really get onto these as a high protein source of food for the cooler part of the year in particular. It's, uh, it's a, a big hit of calories for not a lot of effort really. They'll typically target bait fish during periods of low light. So early and late in the day are favourite times to do that. But on days where it stays overcast, maybe a little bit damp, winds blowing a little, and it's fairly mild, they can continue to target bait fish on and off throughout the whole day. Whereas from a, an insect feeding perspective, that sort of warmest part of the day, that late morning to mid-afternoon, is the key time really. And typically the majority food source in virtually every still water is going to be midge pupae and bloodworm, so the midge larvae. These things are often referred to as bloodworm for the midge larvae and you'll hear anglers' uh, favourite term, buzzer, referred to for the midge pupae. This is the most abundant food source in, in virtually every body of still water in the UK. Aside from that, we've got a load of immature nymphs that are going to hatch the following spring and summer that are maturing in the water, so you can have things like caddis larvae, damselfly nymphs, that sort of thing, dragonfly nymphs. And all year round you've got shrimps, not in every water, but in a lot of waterways. And they're another good protein source for the food. That's going to cover the majority of your food sources, both bait fish and insect based, during the winter. So. No need to have a massive fly selection in there. Despite all that, there is a stubborn tendency amongst winter fly fishermen to revert automatically to lures. What you're saying is that there are also match-the-hatch situations to be exploited too. Very much so. And um, a key part of that is understanding that the way I tend to term it is give the fish some respect. If everyone's there out on the bank, throwing big lures at them, stripping them back, casting and casting and casting, that creates one, a lot of disturbance, and two, the fish are seeing a lot of, on average, larger flies 
sometimes quite bright flies, highly mobile, setting off a lot of vibration, disturbance, this, that and the other. And they learn quickly. If they're seeing this again and again and again, particularly on waters where you've got catch and release, these flies and these tactics will only stay productive for so long, after which the catch rate's going to fall through the floor unless you adapt. And part of adapting with that is fishing under appropriate conditions, a more imitative approach. When we chatted earlier before switching the voice recorder on, one point you emphasised was that winter is decidedly not the time for dry fly fishing. This, however, does not preclude the use of floating lines, though these can present difficulties, particularly in windy conditions, when the same working depth could readily be achieved by the use of a number of different lines. That said, the line of travel of the fly in the water would then also differ. So what are the key criteria for winter fly line choice? As you rightly pointed out, the winter time isn't the best time of year for dry fly fishing. And while that's great fun, you know, seeing the fish come up and, and eat the fly off the surface, there aren't a lot of fly hatches during the winter time. And, and when they are, they're often far too sparse for the fish to really get feeding aggressively on the surface. Most of the time they stay taking the nymph subsurface. So in terms of lines and approach to that, because the fish are cold water loving anyway, very often they're not necessarily deep. If we draw a parallel here, for example, with a carp, they're a warm water fish, middle of winter, tend to have their activity levels at a very much minor level and they're snuggled up on the bottom of the lake. The trout, however, are more often than not moving around, quite active, feeding on and off throughout the day, and very often quite high in the water. So a floating line really isn't, even though it's, we're not talking dry fly fishing situations 99.9% .9 of the time, a floating line in many cases is a very good line to use because it gives us more control over the flies in a whole host of different situations where we can just fish a leader of a, a good length and that will allow us to fish using various retrieves and, and flies a whole range of different depths. Now, under some circumstances, for example, up to very windy conditions, a floating line is often inappropriate because the line will get dragged around too much by the water movement. And in those situations, switching to something like an intermediate line, if the fish aren't very far down in the water column, will just allow us to cut the line through that upper surface drift and give us a better presentation and more control and ultimately catch more fish. Another situation might be if the fish are feeding deeper down, if you're using a floating line, you either might not be able to get your fly to the depth, feeding depth of the fish, or might not be able to maintain your fly with the required retrieve at the feeding depth of the fish, both of which are going to massively impact on your success rate. In that situation, using a sinking line of one density or another to allow you to 
maximise the amount of time your fly is at the taking depth or the taking zone at that point in time is going to hugely improve your success rate out on the water. Typically, during the winter time specifically, we'd be looking at perhaps fishing waters that would be classed as small or medium-sized still waters. Most of the reservoirs have closed smack bang in the middle of winter. But if we're talking about fishing early spring, late autumn periods, and now into the early winter, quite a lot of reservoirs are still open as well. But we can tackle it from a bank fishing situation and a boat fishing situation. From a bank fishing perspective, having a, a floating line, an intermediate line, which is a very slow sinker, and then something that's a halfway house, like a sink tip line, will cover the majority of situations from the bank. You could perhaps throw in a fairly slow sinking line, something that might be classed as like a, a die three or something like that. It's a medium sink rate. Those lines are going to cover all your options really from the bank. Then from a boat perspective, you could say, you could have those lines plus some faster sinking lines such as a, a die 5 and a die 7 density line. So those lines are going down 5 inches per second, 7 inches per second. So they're really quite fast sinking lines. And the aim there is to get the flies down as fast as possible, particularly in boat fishing situations where you might need to get flies down deep fast and you might have the motion of the boat moving. If the line takes too long to get down, you're passing over the top of fish. What do you think, and probably not that much is the answer, of booby fishing over the winter months? Some people love them, some people hate them. But the whole concept with the booby is, it allows you to position your fly. It can be used as a controller for other flies on a leader, or it could be fished singly on its own on a fast sinking line and tweaked along the bottom so it fishes over old weed beds, which is an area that feeding fish are going to look at. So it, it's not so much the fly that's an issue, it's sometimes how it's been used has given it a bad reputation, if you like. And I suppose the whole aspect of lure fishing, as you mentioned earlier on in, within the, the scope of fly fishing, has had a bad reputation really. It's often referred to as, as mindless lure stripping, but the anglers that I know that fish lures really well are doing anything but fishing them mindlessly. So what then does well thought out lure fishing involve? Do you, for example, cast at all points of the compass trying to vary sink times, or is there more to it than that? The whole thing of fish location that you're referring to there is without doubt my primary thought on the success of a day's fishing, that and timing, both in terms of the feeding times of the day, when the fish are going to be most active, and timing being on the water in the sort of conditions that the fish are going to be more likely to feed in as well. Now, when I say timing in terms of conditions, it's well documented in 
virtually every angling book written in the last 40 years, I think, optimum conditions for various species of fish and, and this, that and the other. However, I have to say, having spent over 200 days a year on the water for the last 12 years, I've come to the conclusion that actually consistency is the biggest factor. Given consistent conditions, the fish will adapt and get on the feed in virtually every situation to a greater or lesser extent. What they really, really hate, like most people, is change. And the more pronounced and rapid the change, the more impact it has on their feeding behaviour. But coming back to the location element, the best piece of kit anyone's got in their fishing gear are their own eyes. And if you couple that up with the power of a good pair of polarised sunglasses, then you've got the optimum equipment to get out there and locate some fish. I would encourage anybody and everybody to spend more time watching for signs of fish and less time repeatedly casting on the water. I can empathise completely with anybody who only gets to fish a handful of days a year. They look forward to their fishing trip. When they get there, they jump out of the car, tackle up, run out of the car park, down to the water's edge. First bit of water you get to, break out the rod, start casting away because you're just so happy to be there and get out on a day's fishing. I can remember making the same mistake myself. And it is a mistake. You're much better off to spend time just to calm down a little bit. And while you're calming down, have a good look around. Look for signs of fish, whether that be fish that are moving, fish that are feeding. If they're feeding and you can see some activity, look a little bit closer in that area. And very often you can get some clues to what the fish might be feeding on. I used to be a member of a syndicate on quite a large upland reservoir where I would fish in the winter months when the weather wasn't suitable to go out to sea in the boat. Often it would be wild with lots of colour in the water, conditions no doubt faced by a lot of fly fishermen. Not a feeding sign to be picked out anywhere and absolutely no in-water visibility at all. What then would be your approach under those circumstances? Well again, if it's a water you're familiar with, you should have some idea of features within that water. And these will generally coincide with, even if you're not aware of the specific features that are there, they'll coincide with the well-trodden hotspot. So a quick chat with the fishery manager, if, you, if it's a water you're not familiar with or you don't fish too often, or one or two of the regulars will put you up on these. Another way of doing it is to walk around and where the grass is quite well worn on the bank, there's usually a good reason for that. And it's generally, it's quite a productive and frequented spot. But if there's any visibility into the water, whether you fished there before or not, a quick walk around with a pair of Polaroids, even if there's some colour in the water, will allow you to be able to see into the margins to some degree and at least some features and particularly areas where the water drops off quite quickly in the margins. It tends to pull fish in towards you, particularly in the colder weather. So that's one element to it. So having 
established some areas where we might want to spend a little bit more time fishing, then what we can look to do, and assuming we're starting off with this lure approach, as you just said, which on a particularly piggy day with some coloured up water would be a, a good starting point, then systematically grid searching the water is a really good way to cover it. And when I say systematically covering it, we can look to grid search it, both casting at different positions across the surface of the water, but then also allowing varying times for your fly to sink. So you're also searching top to bottom, as well as grid searching across the surface. And you can really thoroughly search the water to try and isolate the taking depth and position of some fish. Now you cover this quite quickly with a confidence fly and if you're not getting hit, move. That's a really good starting point but all the time you're doing that, keep your eyes open. Let's say we've arrived at a water and clarity is reasonable but it's blowing. You can see somewhere down in the water, but feel restricted by the wind. How do you go about reading the signs under those circumstances, and would you actually be disadvantaged if you chose to avoid facing into the wind? Anywhere where you've got an inflow or an outflow of water, be that water flowing from a, an incoming stream, water coming in from adjoining lakes, spring flow, so groundwater coming into the lakes, that flowing water is going to be a potential attraction to fish. And the only time it won't is if there's an extreme temperature difference. So if you've got very hot water flowing in in the height of summer, or if you've got extremely cold water flowing into an otherwise higher temperature lake during the winter time, it can push fish away potentially. But if you've got water coming in that's of an acceptable temperature to the fish then the flowing water is always going to be an attraction to them both from an oxygen standpoint and also it can potentially bring food to the fish so they've got to expend less effort in obtaining their food it's almost coming down to like a, a river situ a mini river situation where the fish can hold in a given position and have the food brought to it by the current. Other aspects that are going to really attract the fish are any areas where there's a sudden depth change, so drop-offs, any kind of cover from weed beds or marginal cover like overhanging trees, that sort of thing. These are all real great areas that are going to harbour food, provide cover for the fish and generally speaking during the winter fishing oxygen content isn't really a problem because the water is nice and cold anyway so it's an ideal temperature for the fish. That comes into play less during the winter fishing. The main thing is does the fish feel secure and areas that are going to offer it maximum amount of energy for minimum amount of effort. So that's what I'm looking at. When I'm looking at the water, I'm looking for areas where the fish are going to feel happy and safe. 
and where they can feed easily. What effect, if any, can prey switching have on matching the hatch? Trout moving away from something they would preferentially eat to something less desirable simply because it's more abundant and therefore more energy efficient to concentrate on. Can that be a factor too? It can be, but what tends to happen is the majority of the time is you're looking at what is easily available and the whole thing of, of prey switching and what they would class as selective feeding behaviour is really driven by temporary excessive abundance of a given prey item. And whilst on the face of it, it can look as if every fish switches onto a specific thing, very often if you look carefully, not all the fish are doing the same thing. But it does happen. It very much does happen. A lot of it does come down to ease of feeding. It really does in those situations. It's just a case of if there's so much of something that's right there, that's really easily obtainable, that makes chasing down anything else much harder work, then the majority of the feeding, not all of it, but the majority of the feeding will be focused around a specific thing. A very interesting example of that I experienced over two days with two different clients a couple of years back but it stuck in the mind because it was apparently really quite marginal but on day one this was very early spring we've got a buzzer hatch coming off and there was some small roach rising to the buzzers and there was some trout movement that we could see on the water it was quite early on in the day, so we elected to start with a lure, mimicking the roach. We were covering feeding fish. We could see the fish feeding activity, and we weren't going to take. We couldn't touch a fish. Now, through observing what was going on in terms of the fish's behaviour, I felt that the fish were focusing on the midge pupae, the buzzers, rather than the roach. And the scattering of the roach was more along the lines of them just getting out of the way of the trout. So we switched to fishing the buzzers, and within two casts we'd got a fish, and we caught several more. Now the following day, I was with a different client, conditions were the same, and on the face of it, we were faced with exactly the same scenario, the same activity was going on, apparently. So we started off with the buzzers. We received absolutely no takes whatsoever. And during this time, I again noticed a subtle difference. And the subtle difference was that the buzzer hatch was not quite as dense as it was the day before. So rather than feeding on the buzzers, the trout had chosen to target the roach that were feeding on the buzzers because it made the roach more vulnerable because they were concentrating on feeding on the buzzers, they weren't necessarily so alert to the trout chasing them. So on this hunch we swapped to fishing an imitative lure, and almost straight away we got into fish. So that's an example, if you like, of what can happen with selective feeding. Also, a classic example of the importance of not deciding on how to fish before you get to a venue. Very much so. I'm sure we've all done it. 
we've read something in a magazine or we've learned something on the water on a previous visit and we think we're going to try that and before you even go fishing you've already decided you're going to try this it's a trap we've all fallen into and again I come back to taking your time out the car spending time watching rather than working to a if you like a, a predefined plan before you even get to the water and even then when you've watched and learned and set up if it isn't working or if something changes you've then got to change so you're constantly reading the water and reassessing and sometimes from that changing what you're doing throughout the day and it's a really important part if you want to continue your success throughout the day. How do you go about tackling situations where fish are mouthing your fly but doing it so subtly that you get absolutely no indication of interest? Is this perhaps where sight indicators come into their own? Or is that too much like coarse fishing to be a genuine fly fishing technique? When it comes to sight bobs, obviously you're only going to fish them on a floating line because it's pointless on a sinking line. So just coming away from the sight bob for a second... The most reliable way of knowing a fish has eaten your fly is if you're in a situation where you can see the fish actually inhale your fly, which is why I think everybody loves dry fly fishing. One, it's very exciting because you see the fish eat your fly, and two, it's a dead cert. You know the fish has eaten your fly. Now, in some waters that are very clear, and under the right light conditions, you can see fish at your fly subsurface as well, whether that be a lure or a nymph. And in those situations, you can either see your fly or you know ballpark where it is. You can see the fish, and if you see a flash of white as it opens its mouth, you strike. That's the most reliable bite indication, full stop. The further you come away from that fly, the more bites you're going to never ever know about because they can inhale that fly and spit it out in the blink of an eye. And I've watched them do this two, three times with the same fly on the same cast without even making any movement on the leader, let alone the fly line, the tip of a floating fly line twitching, pulling away or somebody feeling a pull on the end of the line. So the further we get away from watching the fish eat the fly, the more bites occur that we never ever know about. And on some days that can be seven or eight out of every ten takes that actually happen, which is quite upsetting, I think. So if you translate that into a situation perhaps where we've got cold conditions and cold water and the fish are a little bit lethargic, they are not going to chase anything, so lure fishing becomes way less effective. You've got to really either fish a lure with a very slow retrieve and scale the flyback, or we're going to be fishing small midge pupae, small nymphs such as something like a hare's ear or a pheasant tail, something like that. And you're going to be fishing it really, really slowly. So you're not generating it that much momentum in, in the fly line, in the fly, to highlight a subtle take from the fish. And if you're not able to watch a fish eat your fly, 
then having something in the leader, i.e. maybe an indicator or greasing up part of the leader, so we're essentially doing the same thing, is going to move your bite indication as close to the fly as practicably possible. So you're automatically going to see more bites. From that perspective, I don't really have a problem with bite indicators because what's the difference between me putting a piece of foam or a piece of yarn or a clip-on piece of plastic in the leader and putting a dry fly in the leader and hanging a nymph off the back of it and watching the dry fly for an indication of a bite. They're doing the same job. The difference is that a fish can come up and eat the dry fly off the top and be hooked. And for that reason, if I am fishing very slowly and want some indication in the leader, typically I'll put a dry fly in the leader and use that as my indicator rather than using a plastic indicator. Let's say then that people listening to this do get the winter fly fishing bug. Summarise for them the basic advice in terms of weather, fishery choice, peg selection and the necessary tackle to give them the best chance of a successful outcome. First of all, if you can, choose your weather. If the weather's been stable for a few days or two, three days before you go and you've got similar conditions, then great. The best fishing conditions are going to be something that's fairly mild, overcast day, if there's a bit of wind about, great, if there's a bit of drizzle in the air, great, absolutely fine, if it gets a bit wet, fine, if it gets a bit windier, fine, but a mild day as well is going to be a little bit more comfortable for the angler on the bank. It's great to be out in a, a sunny, frosty day, it's beautiful to be out there, but the fish are going to take some time to come onto the feed, particularly if it's been a sharp frost overnight. And from that perspective, narrow your fishing period down. Arrive a little bit later, aim to get on the water perhaps around about 11 o'clock, fish through till 3 or 4 o'clock. So a slightly shorter day, but fish the period of the day well then, where the fish are most likely to feed. If you get on the water at 8 o'clock and it's freezing, by the time the most productive fishing time, on average, occurs, you're going to be wanting to go home because you're absolutely frozen through and you've caught nothing for three hours. So, timing is a key thing. From the gear perspective, have some kind of layering system with your own clothing so that you stay comfortable. Have some Polaroids for eye protection, both from hooks and glare off the water, but also so you can see fish or signs of fish much better. And then in terms of the outfit, don't think you've got to go and fish eight weights because it's a blustery day. Spend some time when you can't go fishing, practicing your casting. Go and get a casting lesson from a local instructor. An hour with an instructor or two is really good money spent they'll help you to hone your skills and then you can go away and, and you can practice your casting when you can't go fishing. That way, when you can go fishing, you can handle the wind. And if you can handle the wind with your casting, you can quite happily go out and fish five and six weight rods on small to medium sized waters and say on a reservoir 
a six weight rod in most conditions is fine, specifically for things like fishing a floating line, intermediate lines, that sort of thing. But a rod rated six stroke seven is going to allow you to, to handle any conditions whatsoever. And certainly on either quieter days weather-wise or smaller waters, a five or six weight rod is going to be perfect. So a nine foot rod rated somewhere around that, one of those line systems, and then floating line, intermediate line, if you're bank fishing, if you've got some sink tips or some uh, some poly tips, something like that, that converts your ordinary floating line into a, a sink tip line, great. Or you can have a specific sink tip line. And that's going to cover most situations from the bank, to be fair. A box of flies, handful of lures with different colours, some nymphs that are focusing on buzzers, shrimps, some hairier nymphs, some pheasant tail nymphs, maybe some dowelback nymphs, some bloodworm patterns, will cover most situations. So we're not talking about huge numbers of flies, but have some in different weights, have some in different sizes. When I say a, a small fly to most people, they think about a size 12. Now a size 12 from a nymph perspective in the winter time for me is a big fly. I'm generally fishing 14s and 16s, sometimes 18s and 20s, and less so a size 12. Lure patterns, I might be fishing size 8, size 10, size 12s, but equally if conditions dictate or fish behaviour and response dictate, I'm going to have some tied on size 14s and 16s hooks as well, just so we can show the fish something different when they've seen a lot of flies. I hear what you're saying, but fly fishing for many people is a spring, summer and autumn pursuit. So how do you sell the advantages of winter fly fishing to me? Winter fishing, although it's sometimes less comfortable for the angler, it's more comfortable for the fish. There are cold water fish, rainbow trout are the most widely available still water fish from a stockfish perspective. They're native to North America. Their home waters are glacial fed rivers and lakes. So they are very happy in cold water. They really don't like hot water. During the winter period, the late autumn period, the early spring period, Water temperatures are down, fish activity is up, they're happy to feed if you fish at the right times and the right conditions for them. And just to top it off, those water conditions increase the activity of larger fish. They're much more likely to feed at the times when we are generally allowed on these waters to fish. And that means everybody gets a better shot at catching maybe a fish of a lifetime and certainly enjoying more productive fishing, getting out there and having fun. And a lot of the modern fisheries, certainly the ones that are have been around for time and have moved with the times and are looking to the future and what people want, are providing facilities where you can go out there and fish for maybe two, three, four hours then go take a break, maybe go and have a meal, have a warm by a, a log burner, that sort of thing, socialise with a few friends, and then 
that adds another element of enjoyment to your day's fishing, but it also re-enthuses you to get back out there again and fish some more. And it makes the whole day more comfortable, more pleasurable, and ultimately more productive. In truth, you're preaching to the converted here. I fly fish much more over the winter than I do over the summer months, simply because it's something I fall back on when conditions aren't good to go to sea. So I can vouch for everything you've said. It would be a crying shame if more people didn't get to sample the same. My well, thanks then to Steve Yeomans for bringing this to our attention to us here. 